0: certainly heard of demons, those processes that lurk in the background and do what they're supposed to do. You might even have written or run programs that are demons. Maybe. Today we'll talk about them, those demons or daemons or demons, whatever you pronounce them, what there is to know about their mechanisms and details. A very big generic overview of demons on Unix. I'm Vinam and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. Let's start with the history, etymology and terminology, the where does it come from, what does it mean and why it's written this way. By now, if you've been using Unix for quite a while, you should already know that demons are not truly demons. You may even have made the distinction in your mind separating the two concepts. Some even use different pronunciation not to mix the terms daemons and demons. However, this distinction doesn't really exist when it comes to the terms and history. Demons truly means demon. It's just an older al- alternative spelling of the word demon. Demons are spirit slash supernatural beings of the Greek mythology that go around doing their deeds in the shadows, overlooking the world or individuals sometimes affecting them in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. They aren't biased, what they do is more or less objective in that regard. That's rather different than today's perception of demons as evil, mean, satanic spirits. Those demons are always there in the background, symbolizing the not visible yet always present and working its will. But where did the metaphor come from? To put it bluntly, it was coined by the programmers of the MIT project MAC Mac which ran the Compatible Time-Sharing Systems, which was one of the first time-sharing operating system. It was the ancestor that inspired Multics, Unix, and ITS. The term was first used to refer to what was called a dragon, and then more generically used to refer to anything that acted like that dragon. A dragon being similar to what we call today demon, but in the difference that it is not invoked at all, but instead is used by the system to perform secondary tasks. I couldn't find much info about dragon, so if anyone got more on that, then please add up resources when this gets released. Demon was then used to refer to the more generic concept. The name demon itself was inspired by Maxwell's demon which is a physics philosophical experiment where an imaginary being interferes constantly in the background with the particles to make them behave in certain ways. And this experiment describes well today's use on UNIX, a background process that does system cores. The first prototype of the daemon concept was a program called daemon, all in uppercase, that automatically made tape backups of the file system. So After that, some started rationalizing the name choice and built the backronym disk and execution monitor. It's a constructed phrase claimed to be the source, but that really isn't, just to make more sense of the term. Today, the concept of daemon is present in many areas under other names such as services. The concept isn't necessarily unique to unix, but it's most often related to it when you hear that name. Still, it's hard not to equate demon with the satanic underworld definition, when even the BSD mascot, Beastie, makes fun of it. So that's where the name comes from, but what's a generic overview of demons? What do they really do? What's their job? What's their purpose? What's special about them? After much reading, I've compacted the definition of a demon into the following. A daemon is a process and a multitasking operating system that offers services slash functionalities or does autonomous tasks, sometimes repetitive slash periodic, sometimes in response to occurrence of specific system events or a condition, aka it supervised the system, and most of the time it's a long-running process but not always, and most of the time without interventions and independent of a user, and most of the time in an unnoticed, unobtrusive way, aka in the background. So mix those and it gives you the recipe for a daemon. But what about the term services and servers? They are a subset of what we call daemons. Daemons are just a bit broader, they don't have to be services. A daemon can be a long running background process that answers requests for services. So a service, like the name implies, is a software that provides capabilities to other softwares. Services are typically automatically started at boot up, are long lived, they have states that can be altered, like running, not running, etc. They have relationships and dependencies with other services, and they are usually critical component of a system, and so are started during the boot, that's the reason why. So those services are managed by a daemon, the init process, the first process started on a system, the PID1. Its job is to manage what runs at what time, to handle the dependencies and regenerate them after crashing so that the system keeps running correctly. And more on that topic later, we'll touch it. So some of examples of such services can be logging systems, a database or a network manager. Another thing Daemon can do can be to act as middlemen, as message passing systems to the kernel API slash system calls, which are services providing access to some lower level layer. You can see how services fit as a subset of the daemon definition here. A server is also a subset of the daemon definition. Simply said, servers are processes that are long running and perform services based on requests that can be launched remotely from another machine. The obvious example here are a web server, a mail server or a secure shell server, SSHD. Other examples of daemons include CronD, the time-based job scheduler, bind the Berkeley internet name daemon, NTPD, Network, Time, Protocol, Demon, etc. You get the idea. And as you might have noticed, a lot of those demons end in D, the letter D. It's a tradition and convention, taken for the sake of clarity, that demon names when checked in the process tree all have a trailing D. This is just so that when you give processes a glance, you can denote which is a demon and which is not. You said that demons run as background processes, rather than being under the direct control of an interactive user. What does this imply? What does it mean to run in the background? Let's do a bit of explanations. There are arguably three cases where a process is considered a background demon. The first one is when the process is started during boot time, usually by the init process, and thus is not attached to any terminal. The second one is when the process is invoked explicitly on a terminal and then detached from all terminals and run in the background. The third case is more or less commonly said to be about, quote, uh, transforming a process into a daemon, even though it's not really. It consists of simply having the process in the process group attached to a terminal, but running in the background. We'll dive into the details of every one of these categories later, but first let's talk about processes in general. A process is an instance of a running program. It is managed by the kernel of the operating system and is referred to by its process ID. When looking from an interaction point of view, there are only three types of processes, interactive from the CLI interaction, batch from a pipeline and daemon which are the rest. Another way to perceive demons is to see them as those repetitive administrative tasks that are fired by a scheduler from time to time, but maybe in that case it's the scheduler such as cron that is the demon and not the task themselves. Yet again, even the automated background tasks are fired upon on login and can be said to be demons. This depends on your perception. Now back on topic. From a terminal process management point of view, processes are either in the foreground or in the background. The foreground processes are the ones we interact with on a terminal. They get the STDN, STDout, the STDERR. they are the session leader of a terminal and there can only be one session leader at a time, one controlling process of a terminal. When one process is the session leader, all the other processes and the group are in the background and run by themselves instead of running from user inputs. The signals sent to the terminal are always sent to the process group which has it as a controlling terminal. The session leader catches it. With today's job control, that is the BSD style of job control, terminals send a stop signal to background processes that try to write to a terminal, the sigttn and TT out signals. This makes it a pain if you want to have long-running processes in the background that might inadvertently write to a terminal and be stopped by mistake. For that reason, the background processes that want to act like demons have to become immune Or ignore those signals. Or you could possibly disable the feature in the terminal itself to not send that signal when a background process tries to write to its terminal. But that's not the start of the issue with having a daemon attached to a terminal like that. The biggest issue is that if the terminal process exits, the wannabe daemon will be killed because it's still associated with it. In fact, it's killed because it will receive the SIGHOP hangup signals from the terminal, which the default actions will be to terminate the process. So one way to alleviate the pain, again, is to ignore that signal. The no-hop command does just that, it's a wrapper to ignore SIGHOP. If stdout and stdr are connected to a terminal, it also redirects them to no But then the question is, what happens when the terminal process ends? when the parent of the wannabe daemon dies. Well, that's simple. When the parent of a process terminates, it is assigned or adopted by the init process, the PID one, as parent by default. Now, in this case, it will have no controlling terminal and will run in the background as intended. That is one reason the demons are started during the boot process, but not the only one as we'll see later. So we're starting to understand the idea behind running demons. It doesn't really lie in the association or disassociation from a terminal, but more in the other criteria we talked about in the earlier section. However, as we've seen, it's not as simple to run processes with the intention of having them as demons. It's not as simple when they're not session leaders, nor when they don't have a controlling terminal. How do you even communicate with demons? This poses many problems. How does this all fall into place? This makes it hard to write a demon and to manage them without missing edge cases, and that is why some standards and good practices got built around demons over the years. And that is what we're going to explore next. Because of everything we've discussed in the previous section, it is tricky to write a demon. Fortunately, all you have to do is follow a set of rules and norms to get your daemon running correctly. You could possibly create a daemon using the technique we talked about earlier, namely forking a child process in the background and immediately exiting so that it is adopted by the init process, but that's not good enough, you have to do other things so that you'll be sure it won't break. You can find a list of the series of steps all over the internet. Some tips can even be found in your man page, check out the man 7 daemon page. Most of those recommendations are similar in some ways and emerge from the requirement and demands of the service manager of that system, be it the init systems or not, be it apple mac os 10 daemon, sysv style init system, new style system d, inet d, launch d, etc. So again daemons are not really hard to write, on the contrary, They're easy to put together. What's tricky is to think of the edge cases, quirks, and side effects. Things that are usually taken care of when processes are running in an interactive session on a terminal, but not when detached. For example, what we've talked about earlier namely, the process group, the user ID running the process, the input and output, etc., redirection. If the daemon is started at boot, it has to manage those itself explicitly, and if it's launched from within a, log- a login session, then it needs to undo a lot of what has been said during the login sequence to ensure that the association with the calling environment is destroyed. In the best of the worlds, the service manager, or sometimes called the super server, the process that manages the daemons, which usually launches them at boot, and is also usually the init process, would handle those steps and perform the functions you need. That's just a nota bene to say that the actual procedure doesn't have to be coded inside the daemon itself, but can be external. Let's also note that for old system v daemons, those steps are required during the initialization. Other init system service managers might handle that for you, so be sure to check out their documentation. So now let's go through the usual criteria that are recommended to turn a process into a demon. The order might vary according to different specs, but the ideas are the same. The first step that needs to be taken care of is the one we talked about before, forking off the parent process of the demon and let it terminate gracefully, so that the soon-to-be demon process runs autonomously in the background. For those who don't know, forking is a system call that creates a child process that is a near copy of its parent. It's the only system call that returns two distinct values, the PID of the child for the parent that keeps running, and 0 for the child. In the case of errors, it returns minus 1. In sum, this step is about separating the daemon from its parent. The second step is to become a session leader and group leader. On Unix, every process has multiple identifiers attached to it. And each of those identifiers means something different, usually a way to regroup related processes. You certainly know the PID, the process ID, a unique number associated to the process so that you can refer to it. There's also the parent ID, the ID of the parent process that started it. There's also the group ID, which is the PID of the process group leader. There's also the session ID, which is again, just the ID of the session leader. Processes in the same session have the same controlling terminal. Processes in the same group also belongs to the same session, but a session can have multiple process groups. To picture that, the shell is usually the session leader, it controls the terminal, and every pipeline executed is a process group. They, ru- they run grouped with each other. Ok, so we have a background process without a parent, or actually an orphan process inherited by the init process but that process is still attached to the terminal itself and the process group associated to it, because it has inherited it from the dead parent. In this case, the daemon is still subject to receiving terminal-generated signals, and signals sent to the process group, remember for example the hang up, which we talked about earlier. So it would be pretty bad, we also don't want to ignore those signals as we said, It might also be a good idea to reset all the signal handlers to their default behavior, because you might not know how the parent has changed them. We need to detach, disassociate ourselves, to create our own process group and become our own process leader, that means disassociating the daemon from any controlling terminals and having its own session. Under some systems, the previous step, the fork step, is not mandatory, and the detachment can be done directly. However, on other systems it's mandatory because a process that is already a group leader cannot change its group and forking is an easy way to solve that. Forking is also a way to prevent the terminal from locking up and making the shell believes that the demon has terminated. There are different system calls to do what we talked about. IO control on some older systems or set SID on newer, that is for the associated session id and for the group we have set p group amongst others which is not used along with set sid. So at this point if you looked at the process tree you should see that your daemon has no controlling terminal, that its parent process id is 1, that its session id is the same as its group id and the same as its own id. It's its own session leader and its own group leader. Now the next step after that is to fork again. If you know a thing or two about process management, which we might discuss soon in another episode, you might know that being a session leader is the only way to potentially reacquire a terminal. And we don't want that, we don't want the demon to acquire any terminal. Not because it's bad, but because we have a limited set of terminals and we're not gonna spare one for every demon we have. Also, even in systems where we don't have that problem, where process gets attached to already acquired terminal, we don't want this because we don't even need a terminal for the daemons, it will only create complications and security issues. Under some systems, like 4.2bsd, this is already taken care of because only processes with the group id of 0 can acquire a controlling terminal, and our daemon has a group id equal to its own process id, as you may remember. But we have to take care of all systems and all cases. The easiest way to prevent the reacquisition of a terminal is to fork again and run the actual daemon and the child while again killing the parent. And because the parent is the process group leader, it has to ignore sig hangup because otherwise it will forward sig hangup to the child and kill it, since the parent is the session leader. This signal handling will also be inherited by the child. Yeah, this has the final effect of having a daemon that has no controlling terminal, that is immune to signals from the T2I driver, and cannot acquire a new terminal since it's not a process group leader, its PID is different than its PGID and SID. So alright, so those steps already should give you a nice daemon, but there are other small things to take into consideration too. For example, it's a good idea to set the current working directory of the daemon to the root directory instead of the one inherited from the parent. Like that, the process doesn't keep hold of any directory or resources under any mounted file system, allowing them to be unmounted at any time and the root directory is always guaranteed to be there. A daemon also doesn't have to use any file descriptors, so it's also a good idea to close the ones that have been inherited by the parent or to redirect them to slash dev slash not. Be them file descriptors to files, or the standard ones like std and stdr. And anyway the demons don't have a terminal so it will prevent security issues too. It's also good to do that because sometimes the files related to the terminal settings are still open and when they are the terminal settings are not reset until the last process releases them. You can listen to the episode about terminals to don't bore about this concept of terminal settings. Another attribute a demon inherits from the parent is the mask the file creation mask. It's also a good idea to set it to zero to allow the permission mask to depend only on the demon and not what the parent wanted it to be. And you can listen to the podcast about bits and bytes. I've discussed about mask a bit in it. And you may also need to reset environment variables to sane settings, and quote, that don't interfere with the demon instead of using the ones from the parent. So, nice and sweet, we should be settled now. We got a demon running, and its own environment, separated from the terminal environment. Now we can add whatever extra we want to add, be them related to the way we want to communicate with the demon, like logs or whatever else. Usually, the main part, the payload, the core of a demon is a big loop, an infinite while one loop that repeats the same task over and over again, and some cases checking for conditions. It would have been better to call them the myth of Sisyphus instead of demons. But that's it. So let's summarize the steps you need to take care of before the actual daemon code. First, you create a background a background process. The parent of the daemon is PID1. Second, you become session leader and group leader. So the group ID is equal to the session ID is equal to the process ID. Third, you fork again to detach and force it to not re- reacquire terminal. The parents should also ignore SIG hangup. So the PID is not equal to the group ID and the PID is not equal to the session ID. Fourth step is to reset the environment. You close all open file descriptors. You connect slash dev null to standard input output if you want to. You reset all signals handled to the default. You reset the signal mask. You sanitize the environment variables. You reset the U mask to zero. You change the current directory to the root directory. And the last step, the fifth step, is to do the actual daemon loop with the core, and the big wild one loop, or whatever way you want to handle it. So that's it. I've linked a sample code in the show notes, it's the code that you can find in a lot of places on the internet. As we've said earlier, all those steps setting up the environment for a daemon can be taken care of by third party, for example the init process. Still, in those cases there are certain requirements that need to be met by the daemon, not only to be able to launch them, but to supervise and control them. Executing the steps we mentioned before may even interfere with how well all this functionality happens. Those new requirements are quite straightforward, they are usually the following but not limited to them. First one, two signals should be handled, SIGTERMS to exit cleanly the daemon, and sig up to reload the configuration file if it applies. Second, the exit code from the main daemon process should reflect if there are errors and problems while executing the daemon. Also the daemon should integrate correctly within the system, be it an init file of some sort or anything else, it also should rely on the system's functionality as much as possible instead of reinventing them. If applicable, the daemon should notify that system upon startup completion or status update via an interface provided by that system and sub- sometimes using the communication mechanism offered by that system be it for interprocess communication or for logging all in all you'll have to refer to the system providing the daemon handling so those were a lot of steps and we- that we talked about earlier and isn't that a repetitive task why not wrap it up there's a function called daemon that first appeared in 4.4 bsd and that does the core of what we talked about earlier some disavow using it as it doesn't implement every single one of the steps, for example the ones about cleaning up the environment. However, that's a very nifty convenient routine that lets you do in one-line the whole detachment, running in the background, closing files and changing directory parts. This is all really good if you want to throw in two minutes of demons and don't want to bother re-implementing everything while not relying on a third-party system. There's the daemon, it's running. Now how do you keep it running? How do you manage, supervise and track it? How do you interact with it? There are programs that we call service manager or super server daemons. The ones we mentioned before, for instance, launch the system, the upstart, service management facility, android init, system 5 init, run init. OpenRC Supervisor, the daemon tools, etc. etc. Most of those also are init systems, but regardless of that and the other features and functions offered by the init, what do those service manager have in common? What are some commonalities they offer? Let's check different features that could be present in them so that we can get the big idea of their role. One of the features could be to start the daemons in a synchronized and deterministic manner according to a configuration file, or to start them in an asynchronous and non-deterministic man- manner according to cross dependencies between daemons set in the configuration files or activated dynamically according to the needs. With the above comes that what we talked about earlier about daemons creation but sometimes not necessarily all the steps. All of this also might be configurable, for example you can control the environment variables passed with the demons for the service manager. Another thing could be to control and monitor all the processes and services in the system. Something else, to recover the system in case of errors or crashes, to make it more reliable. For example, it can implement a configurable restart and retry mechanism depending on the daemon configuration. Also, it could provide useful and detailed debug information in case of crash. Process details, register dumps, memory maps. It could create a graphical representation of the system's processes. It could have an integral and centralized log mechanism implemented in it, so that you don't have to rely on anything else that is implemented inside the daemon instead. It could have a centralized way to control the state of demons, start them, stop them, restart them, monitor them. It could have an integrated inter-process communication protocol integrated inside of it to control and notify daemons. And this is it. It all sounds amazing, right? And it certainly is. Now how does the service manager do all those things? How does it know which daemon is where and its state? There are many approaches to this problem. First of all, let's assume the demon has Im- implemented the criteria we mentioned earlier, when we said it's a third party entity that starts it. Apart, and additionally, from those criteria which is which if we want to sum them are about handling SIGHOP and sigterm returning the right exit code and using the functionalities provided by the by that system instead of reinventing its own a way to approach it is to have the daemon not started completely in the background but to leave it as a child of the supervisor so that it will receive the sig child signal when the daemon stops the fork exec approach, which is a rather direct management approach. Another way is to write the pid of the daemon in the file in a specific location, for example in slash run or slash var slash run, and then have the supervisor poll or use something such as libnotify to assess the changes happening to the daemon. It's also a nice way to have only one instance of a daemon that can't allow to have more than one. Yet another way could be to notify the supervisor from the daemon process itself when its initialization is complete, or when the parent of a sub-second child exits during the daemon creation. The blocks are starting to fit into each other, now let's see what's up with the init system, why is it so special compared to the supervisor's role we just mentioned. The init is not so different than service managers. Actually, that's one of the functionality that an init system can have. The init system itself being a daemon that is automatically started by the kernel during the boot process, slash sbin, slash init. is the first process. This isn't an episode about init system, so we'll keep it short. The real difference an init system has as a service manager over other lies in the fact that it's the first process to start on a Unix system, the PID1. Whatever process it starts, then, will have it as a parent. And, as we said, having the init system as parent is one of the criteria to run a daemon, so it can skip the forking altogether. It's also nice to manage demons from the init process, because it's the process that will receive the sick child when one of its children dies, namely the demon, and thus is in a nice position to manage them. Because it's the first process, it gives the leisure of being able to manipulate start and stop demons early on boot and on shutdown, because it's a process that cannot be killed and you can rely on it efficiently to manage daemons. However, that poses one problem we just vaguely mentioned before, the dependency and order in which those demons are started. There are many schools of thought that take th- this approach differently. For instance, the original research Unix init simply ran an initialization shell scripts and slash etc slash rc. Today we have two main categories, the asynchronous async- the ones and the asynchronous ones. Let's take the t- traditional and prevalent system 5 as an example of a synchronous one. A synchronous init system means that the demons are started sequentially, waiting for the previous one to finish before starting the next one. It follows a predetermined simple order which may lead to delay during boot. But demons are not only started on boot, they can be started or stopped at different stages in time, at different machine states. To automate that, the system 5 in its styles uses what is called a run level, which is a number representing the state of the machine is currently in after boot. So for example there could be one for normal user mode, another for single user mode, another one for shutdown, another one for booting maybe, another one for graphical environment etc. When you switch from one run level to another, the init process executes or stops the appropriate daemons that is tagged with the appropriate run level number. Those numbers usually go from 0 to 6, and their meanings vary depending on the implementation. There are only 3 of them that are considered standard, otherwise the init refers to the slash etc init tab file which defines what each configured run level does in a given system. So the three standards are 0 for halt, 1 for single user mode, or also it's written S, or 6 for reboot. You can also manually change the run level using a comment, which is init. So that's the generic idea behind a synchronous service manager as an init, and it's quite simple. On the other side of the spectrum we have the asynchronous init systems that manages daemons in parallel, automatically handling dependencies between them. In those kind of init systems the demons have to be configured to say what they depend upon so that the init can resolve the dependencies. It might even choose to store the way it rightly handled that dependency so that it will be able to use it without recomputing it on the next boot. This makes the booting process relatively faster, but it doesn't stop there. When asynchronously handling demons, you may not even have to rely on things such as states of the machine or run levels. You can do the daemon activation dynamically depending on multiple conditions and mechanism at the same time. For example, the Bluetooth daemon can be automatically started when a Bluetooth-capable hardware is plugged in and stopped when plugged out. Those mechanisms range from the usual activation on boot to socket based trigger to DBUS based activation to devi- device based activation, which rely on sysfs or udev or whatever, to path based activation, listening to file system changes, to timer based activation like cron jobs, etc. And don't forget that you can mix those up for the same daemon. However, this all comes at the cost of the init process being more complex and having more dependencies. So, the daemon is running, but it's not connected to a terminal. How does it communicate with the rest of the system? How does it know when to do things? The three common ways are event-based notification, enter-process communication, and logging. Let's start with notifications and events. There are many things that can be checked and looked at for notifications. For example, you could poll, keep checking once in a while the file system to see if some specific file's status has changed and trigger actions and the daemon accordingly. Or instead of keeping redoing this maneuver, over and over again you could possibly rely on instant notification of changing using your operating system facilities such as ePoll and iNotifies on Linux or KQ on BSD, or more generally a multi-platform abstraction such as libevent. Another example of notification of system changes could be about the hardware connected to the machine. You could implement in your daemon a way to do actions based on device events. For that you'll have to rely on your operating system device manager, devd on FreeBSD, polling the sysdevfs maybe for new devices, or udev or uedev, or again you could use a multi-platform abstraction. You can listen to the podcast about input devices for a bit more info on that. and. Let's move to the interprocess process communication, the IPC techniques available for a daemon. Well, there are many, actually, it could be anything that doesn't rely on a terminal, so forget about pipes, redirections, or filters. Let's mention a few. The simplest way, but not necessarily the safest, is to use temporary files. It works using the techniques we just mentioned about notification or changes to the the file. The drawback is that it can lead to deadlocks, you cannot know which process can access the file at what time. Another simple way but limited and also not the safest is about using signals. You can probably only want to change the SIGUser1 and SIGUser2 signals. that only gives you two possible actions that you can do after receiving a signal. There's no data transfer and real communication. If you implement signal handling in a daemon, be sure to document what it does, at least. And you can go back to the podcast about signals to know more about them. A more complex way, but again limited this time to the same machine, is the memory map, which maps a file into memory so that it can be shared across processes. But it poses the same problems as a file on the file system though, like deadlocks. The last IPC method I want to share is one that has many super categories above it. It's socket based IPC. Sockets are bidirectional streams that work on the same machine or over the network, Unix based sockets or INET sockets. So you can simply receive any requests from clients that would connect to your daemon, or your daemon could act as a client to a server somewhere else. There are layers above that, for instance, HTTP and XMLRPC. XMLRPC is an XML protocol that does remote procedure call. The most prevalent instance of this today is DBUS. A remote procedure call simply means that you send a request to a procedure that will be executed remotely, and the result will be returned to you many in its system wrap demons with a dbus interface around them upstart and systemd do that for instance it sort of had become the de facto protocol it it was used as a replacement to similar systems such as corba and decopt which are truly horrible and so dbus is a is clean compared to them. A simple example you can relate to would be the way you communicate with your notification deem- demon, A.K.A. pop-up demon, A.K.A. pop-tart demon. You use notify-send, which is simply a wrapper over dbus that will send an XML RPC query to the dbus daemon, which will then notify whoever listens to that type of request and get the result back. In our case it will be the notification daemon request and our notification daemon will receive it. Always keep in mind that the simplest organization is the best when it does what it's supposed to do. And what about logging? Well logging is more generally a user nudge, a way to tell the user what is going on in the daemon, to be able to debug it it as there's no other way to tell what's going on in it. This could be implemented yet again in any possible way, from sending an email to a user, to a post on a remote server, to the usual syslog, to any logging system and mechanisms. Listen back to the episode about logs to get an idea of the the possible options. So that's about it, that's everything I have to say about demons. Maybe one last thing would be to make sure the demon code is secure and fails gracefully. There's nothing more annoying than a demon that keeps crashing for no apparent reasons. Your demon should also do all the blah 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 of the unix philosophy, offer one service and do it well. So yeah that's it, I hope it gave you a great deal of info about the ins and outs of demons. And as usual, if you have more information or things you want to mention or rectify about this podcast subject, you can do this on the podcast extension thread. And also on that thread you can find a link that you can contribute to. So yeah, I'm Vina, and this was the Nixers podcast.